0: Well, good morning again. Uh, As always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. We've been preaching through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter the last several weeks, and we're back in 1 Peter again this morning. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be beginning in verse 4. And as we come to God's Word this morning, it's important to acknowledge something that's going to be very difficult, that's always difficult when we read God's Word, but is maybe especially difficult in passages like this that talk about the church. Peter said in chapter 1 about this challenge, chapter 1 verse 8, he said, though you have not seen Him, referring to Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter acknowledges the challenge of living in light of something that you can't see. And so this morning, we are going to talk about the church. And maybe ironically for us, Peter compares the church to a building project. To God's building project. And if you've been here for a while you know that it is difficult to see the end result of the building project. You see things and it looks like rubble, and you don't understand what they are there for. Peter is going to talk to us about that this morning with reference to the church, and he's going to acknowledge that it is difficult to believe and live in light of things that you cannot yet see. And so as he does that, We're going to ask that God would help us. Uh, This is a fight. It is a fight to believe what we cannot see. So we're going to ask that God would help us in that fight before we read His Word. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know Your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear Your Word and believe it, and that we may live in light of its truth. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is First Peter chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 4. As you come to Him a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. As we look through this passage today, we're going to see three things. First, We're going to see what Peter has to say about the identity of Jesus. He starts there before he gets to the church. Secondly, we're going to see the identity of God's people, the church. And then third, Peter makes reference to the mission of God's people. That we are not just identified, but we are also given a task. We're given a mission in the world. Let's see where Peter starts. He starts this section with the phrase, as you come to him. And so he's going to tell us what happens to us when we come to Jesus. But before he tells us that, he's going to tell us something further about the identity of Jesus. He's already told us a lot about Jesus in this letter. He says that Jesus is the one who rose from the dead and has given us a living hope. He's the one whom the prophets prophesied about in the Old Testament The one who will return again in praise and honor and glory. And he's the one who redeemed you from slavery with his precious and spotless blood. Now, Peter tells us that Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He goes on in verses 6 to 8 to tell us more about Jesus being this living stone. Stone, And he does it by showing us some of those prophecies that he referenced in chapter 1, and that they are about Jesus. The first one is from Isaiah 28. The second one is from Psalm 118. And then the third one is from Isaiah 8. Let's see what Peter says. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, precious, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. The metaphor that Peter gives here is that of a building project. Before he tells us about God's building project, He tells us about a building project that is going on in the world. The world is trying to build something. And what we see in Scripture is that they are trying to build something that will exalt and praise and glorify humanity. They're trying to build something that will bring glory to us. We see this first with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And that story continues on through Scripture. And the picture that Peter gives us is of the world as they're going about in this building project, and Jesus comes along, and they see Jesus, and they inspect him, and they say that he does not fit with their building project, and so they reject him. They toss him over into the rest of the rubble and go on with their building project. In verse 4, Peter says that the contrast to this is that Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. Do you see the contrast? He's rejected as unhelpful by the world, but he is chosen and precious or valued in the sight of God. In fact, he's so precious or valued that God chooses him to be the cornerstone of his building. In an ancient building, the cornerstone is what the whole house had to be built around. They didn't pour a foundation like we do today. It wasn't just that this stone had to be strong, but it had to be perfectly level. Every other stone in the building had to be leveled or plumbed based on the cornerstone. So the building would be a good building or a bad building based on the cornerstone. It was the best stone. It was the stone that the entire house had to be built on and around. This is what God has chosen to do with Jesus. In a minute, we'll get to the spiritual house that God is building, but he has made Jesus the rock, the cornerstone, the sure foundation of the whole house. If you notice, this contrast is drawing on the same theme that Peter introduced to us at the beginning of the letter with elect exiles. In the sight of the world, in relation to the world, Jesus is rejected. But in relation to God, He is chosen and precious. There is always that dichotomy with God's people because there is always that dichotomy with Jesus. But Peter doesn't just portray Jesus as the foundation of God's work in human history. He also portrays Him as the turning point for every individual human in history, notice what Peter says. He says that your life will result in shame or honor. It will result in stumbling and falling or being built up into a house based solely on how you respond to Jesus. Your identity, your destiny, the sum of your life is based completely on whether you respond to Jesus. In faith or in rejection? This is one of the most frustrating things about Christianity for those who think of themselves as good people. It doesn't matter how many good things you do or how well people think of you, if you refuse to come to Jesus, what Peter calls in verse 8, disobeying the word. If you refuse to come to Jesus, you will die in your sin and spend eternity in hell. That is a frustrating thing for those who consider themselves deserving or good. But this is one of the most comforting things about the gospel for us who know that we are sinners. No matter how many or big the sins you are, the sins are that you have committed, no matter how lowly the world thinks of you, if you trust in Jesus, you will spend eternal happiness with him in heaven. This is the message of the gospel, the message of grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your entire life, your eternal destiny, depends on how you treat and respond to Jesus. So if you have not trusted In Jesus, if you continue to look to your own goodness, your own individual performance to make your life valuable or meaningful, lay those things down and trust in Jesus. The text says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you're already a Christian and you have felt yourself drifting Drifting from that trust in Jesus, looking instead to the way that the world thinks of you, the way that you can build on your own foundation. Repent. The Father stands with arms wide open and says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. Trust in Him afresh today. That's what Peter has to say about Jesus in this passage. He is the precious and chosen cornerstone of what God is building in His eternal kingdom. And He is also the one about whom every life in this world turns. He is the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight. Peter then turns from the identity of Jesus to our identity as the people Of God, He does this first in verse 5 and then comes back to it a bit more in verses 9 and 10. Let's let's read verse 5 together. Before we do, though, notice that that first phrase in verse 4 gets interrupted by what Peter says about Jesus, and he's going to continue it here in verse 5. So I'll begin with that phrase in verse 4. As you come to Him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The first thing we need to see about our identity as God's people is that our identity is tied, it is tethered to the identity of Jesus. He is the living stone, and we also. Are living stones. This is the way that Peter talks about the church's union with Christ. We are joined to him, bound to him. And just like all the stones in the house are shaped and formed to fit with the cornerstone, we are being fashioned and formed into his likeness. The New Testament is littered with metaphors that talk about the church's union with Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the church is is a body and Jesus is our head. In Ephesians 5, he says that the church is a bride and that Christ is our bridegroom. Jesus says in John 15 that he is a vine and that we are the branches who have been grafted into him. All of these teach us that we are completely dependent upon Jesus. He is our life. He is our nourishment. He is our master. But this also means that what is true of Jesus is true of us, His people. Peter doesn't just say that Jesus is a living stone, but that He is a living stone rejected by men. This means that for us, those who are united to Jesus, we will join Him in this rejection. Listen to what Jesus says to His disciples later in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. This ought to sober us in our Christian walk. If you are a Christian, you will ultimately be rejected by the world. You are not of this world. Your citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. To use the idea we talked about at the beginning, all of your significance, all of your meaning in life is not something that is seen. It's not something that is evident in this world. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And what Peter tells us is that eventually that will mean rejection by the world. Are you ready for that? Have you so soaked yourself in God's love that you are chosen and precious in His sight? Have you so soaked yourself in that reality that the things of earth have grown strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace? Or do you spend your time trying to make yourself look not so much different from the world around you? Are you trying to gain the benefits of being united to Jesus and avoid the rejection that comes with it? If so, remember Jesus' words that a servant is not greater than his master. The second thing that we learn about the identity of the church in these verses is that the identity of the church is not just tied to the identity of Jesus, but it is also tied to the identity of God's Old Testament people. They're so prevalent in these verses that we can't ignore them even though we can't dive in as much as we'd like to. Let's look first at verse 5. Verse 5 says that we are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and we are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, This is a reference to the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt and where He was worshipped by the offering of sacrifices. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. The book of Hebrews makes it evident that Jesus has nullified the priesthood because the priesthood has been completely fulfilled in Him. And we no longer make the sacrifices of the Old Testament because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. But all of these things that happen with God's Old Testament people are now attributed to the church. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're going to construct an altar up here and start sacrificing animals. What it does mean is that all of those things are not about someone else. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about someone way back then. It's about us. It's about the church. What we need to realize is that when we read our Old Testament, everything that God intended for the people of Israel finds its fulfillment and its meaning in the church. We, this people, not this building, are the temple where God's presence dwells and where he is truly worshiped. We are the ones who have been called to be priests, to mediate God's presence and His Word to the world around us. And we're not told to sacrifice bulls and rams, but to offer the spiritual sacrifice of praise. The Old Testament connections get even more clear in verses 9 and 10. Read those with me. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Chosen race and people for His own possession both come from Isaiah 43, where God talks about His new creation. Royal priesthood and holy nation are a direct quote from Exodus 19. This is what God says to his people as he pulls them out of slavery in Egypt and prepares to give them his law. And then verse 10 here is a reference to the book of Hosea, where God names, he acknowledges the awful identity of Israel as having no mercy and not truly being his people. But then he promises that he is changing their identity into a people who have received mercy and are now His people. One important takeaway from this is that we are identified with the Old Testament people of God. And so, as I mentioned a second ago, when we read our Old Testament, we need to acknowledge that it is Christian Scripture. You will hear some people say that this is for someone else, or God treated His people so differently in the Old Testament that it's not really for us. This is not what Peter says, and this is not what the rest of the New Testament says. The scriptures are given to us. Remember verse 12 of chapter 1. Peter's talking about the prophets of old, and he says this He says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. It's not that when you read your Old Testament, you just might be able to glean a principle here or there that's going to help you live your life. No, the Old Testament prophets were serving you, the people of God, in everything they wrote. Let that be an encouragement to you. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. It was written for the church. It tells us about the identity and the mission of the church. So our identity as the people of God is tied to Jesus, and our identity as the people of God is tied to the Old Testament people of God. But we're not just told who we are in these verses. We're also told about our mission, what we are called to do and to be. I mentioned earlier that the world has a building project going on, that they have rejected Jesus for that building project. Verse 5 tells us about God's building project and that we are the building that he is constructing. Let's read verse 5 again. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is building us into something. Part of that shaping and fashioning is shaping and fashioning individual stones. We talked about this in chapter 1, that the sufferings in your life are like a purifying fire. God in your trials is purging you of the dross and the sin that keeps you from being holy as He is holy. That's what He's doing in each and every individual stone in this building. But that's not the sum total of his work. All of, our, all of these stones, all of us, are fitting together and working together to form a building. And it's clear from Peter's words that this building is the temple, the place where God dwells, the place where he is worshipped. So part of our mission is to participate in the building of this temple. This is the way that Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4. He says, And he, that is Jesus, gave them the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Skipping down to verse 15, he says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, Into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He mixes the metaphors of a human body and a building, but notice that our loving each other and our speaking the truth in love are the means by which God builds up his church. That is exactly what we talked about last week. That God has saved us. He has made us holy so that we might love one another and we might grow and be nourished by his word. God is building us into a marvelous building through our love for one another and through his word. As we talked about in the beginning, this is especially hard to see Right now, in our modern world, in this place where our eyes and our minds go to natural things and natural causes, it is easy to see the church and simply think of it as another human institution. This is true for people who lead the church. You see a church grow quickly or remain healthy for a long time, and you think, I wonder what technique he used in his preaching, or how they did discipleship, or what kind of music they have there. We jump immediately to natural causes instead of first thinking, look at what God is building. Look at what He is doing. God is growing and building His church. This temptation is also there for people who look on the church with disdain. They simply think of it as another human institution led by sinful people. It's led by sinful people. It's made up of sinful people. And so it's just another place where sin and power take place. And that is true. The church is led by sinful people. The church is made up of sinful people with spots and blemishes. We would be lying and doing a disservice to God's Word if we said any different. The church is often hard to love. But when we look at the church with the eyes of faith, We see much more than that. The church is God's building project. It's the temple of His dwelling, built around and upon the perfect and beautiful cornerstone of Jesus Christ and filled with the glory of God. It's His bride, who may not look so pretty right now, but as He washes her with the water of the Word, He is cleansing her of spots and blemishes, and she will be presented to Him in splendor on the day of His appearing. The church is Jesus' body, His hands and feet in the world, listening to and obeying the direction of its head. These are the things that God tells us that He has done and is doing and will do in His church. Do you see it? Do you see the beauty of God's church? Do you see the beautiful temple that He is building us into? Or has this secular age so blinded you that you can only see the natural realities of the church? The second thing we see is that this building, that God is building, is not a monument to us. It's not a picture for the world of our glory and our greatness. It's not as if there are two building projects going on, both with the intent to glorify people. Read verse 9 with me. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God is certainly building us up into something marvelous. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how He is making us holy, just as He is holy. And you see that again here. He talks about us as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. But that holiness, that beauty, are not for our own glory. No one is supposed to look at the church and think, wow, what wise and intelligent people there are there. Or, wow, what diligent and creative workers. No one is supposed to look and say, those people are awesome. Look at the way they love each other. And look at the way they do good to one another and to the world around them. No, they are supposed to look at the church and say, wow, what an amazing God. Look at the excellencies, the beauties of the one who made that. That must be some God. It is so easy for us to turn that into our own glory and our own fame and our own name. And as weird as it might sound to think that someone would look at the church and say that, we're going to see that again and again and again in the coming weeks. God is going to command us to do some things that are difficult for us, things that might baffle us. He's going to command us to live and act toward the world around us in ways that might even frustrate us. But He is clear the entire time that He is commanding these things so that the world around us would see us, see our good deeds, the marvelous temple that we are being built into, and that they would glorify God instead of glorifying us. We are to point to the praise and the excellencies of God to the world around us. This is our mission in the world, not to proclaim the glorious deeds of the church, not to get people to like us, not to grow into an institution that the world respects and appreciates. Our mission in the world is to get people to see and glorify God. Brothers and sisters, this is what you have been called to. You have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Just as He is a living stone, if you trust in Him, He has made you into a living stone, joined with Him and joined with all these other stones around you. And He is building us up into His marvelous, holy temple where the presence of God dwells. All of this is for your good, yes, but it is for the glory and the praise of God. Let us proclaim His excellencies. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so tempted to have tunnel vision, to have our eyes set on things that are right in front of us. And when we do that, we forget about You and about Your eternal plan. We pray that You would forgive us. We pray that You would remake us into Your image that you would open our eyes to see that our life is hidden with Christ, that our inheritance is with Him in heaven. We pray that you would continue to do this more and more through your Word and through your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.